0: hello listeners
1: hello listeners
0: and welcome back to unprecedented scenes in our first ever same month broadcast this is just a few days after we released part one of our interview with andrew doyle here's part two
1: amazing how are you anyway are you um are you doing all right i'm, yeah. I'm trying to be um, a bit podcasty now
0: Yeah, I'm okay. Not too bad. Quite ready to go outside. But, you know, hmm. Yeah, Lockdown 3, isn't it? It's not as good as Lockdown 1, is it? Law of the (laughs) Returns. Interesting (laughs) trilogy of lockdowns, isn't it? Because the first one, it's like, oh, never had one of these before. Very exciting, original, throws a lot of tropes upside down. And then the second one was, like, much shorter, but also the best bits of Lockdown 1 quite intensely added in there. You know, the the sort of gentle release of measures you experience the first time. You just get them straight away. Like a lot of second sequels, second films and trilogies, you yeah. be like, everything good about the first one, but more. And then this third one's just shit.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it is, isn't it? And um, it's a weird situation where you kind of started it with lots of enthusiasm about vaccines and stuff, and then once it all gets going, you realise it's going to take ages. And before it happens, you're going to see a lot of really bad figures, and more people are going to die, and more stupid decisions are going to be made and you just kind of know there's nothing to do but but to sit it out i mean i suppose january and february are are kind of god-awful months anyway aren't they so you might as well be inside i suppose but it's hard going isn't it
0: it's a classic third act problem (laughs) (laughs) they just they just not thought it through but at least listeners have got us to keep up their cheer
1: keep up your cheer who who are we
0: um, well, I'm Dr Adam J Smith, Senior Lecturer in 18th Century Literature.
1: And I'm Dr Joe War, Senior Lecturer in 19th Century Literature, and this is the podcast that is called Smith & War Talk About Satire.
0: Yeah, a, f- a podcast in which we talk about the form, function, future and history of satire, and today we're just going to get straight into it with part two of our interview with Andrew Doyle. If you've not listened to part one, this won't make much sense, go back and listen to part one now, then come back, listen to part two,
2: shall we play the tape? Governments are terrified of getting involved in culture wars stuff, but I'm afraid it's now, it now is politics, it's not a fringe thing now, it's, it's here to stay and this has, this has to be put down one way or another and it's going to take people who, who know they're, they're, they're going to lose their jobs, who know that, you know, but there's more at stake, I think. It's quite easy for me to say because I don't have a boss.
0: Oh, that's one of my questions. Andrew, how, how have you not been cancelled?
2: because who's going to cancel? I mean, I don't get, I don't have a boss to, I'm, I don't have someone who's employing me. You know, I work, I work for myself and I, I'm not going to fire myself. Um, so, but it depends what you mean by canceled. Like I have lost paid work because of my opinions. I, I lost a regular job because of my opinions it depends what you mean no one's literally cancelled it's a metaphor and the social justice movement isn't good at metaphors because they always complain about that though no one's been cancelled they're just being held accountable you know no one's been cancelled we've just contacted the police and had them investigate and had them fired and contacted their employer and contacted their family and, and shamed them on public media but no one's no one's been cancelled you know i see a lot of people saying cancel culture is just boycotts it's just boycotting and it's just i'm like no it's not it's not not buying a big mac is it it's it's contacting someone's employer and harassing them and making sure they don't have a livelihood because you don't like their opinion. Yeah, we're in dark times. We are in dark authoritarian times and it's gonna get worse.
1: It seemed it seemed for about five minutes at the beginning of the pandemic like all of this might just fade out for a bit because there were no. bigger things to talk about, but it absolutely hasn't, has it? Uh,
2: you know, I hate to gloat. I wrote an article about that at the start of the lockdown saying this isn't going to kill off the culture war, but I was so right. And and I, I didn't, however, predict that it was going to make it more mainstream. But that's, that's, that's been the effect and getting a lot of messages at the time saying, whenever I tweeted us to Tanya, they were saying, oh, what's the point? No, no one cares about this now. Because it felt like, you know, we're facing actual hardship here. And, and, and so all of this stuff now doesn't mean anything. The way to tackle this stuff is and always has been liberalism, social liberalism. And we're giving up on that just as it was really, really kicking off and really working. You know, we were totally going in the right direction. This conversation reminds me of something
0: I wanted to ask, which was the suggestion that the idea of wokeness is a construction of the right and that it's made to promote, promote the right. So it's a caricature of the left made by the right to promote right wing values.
2: Yeah, we well, um, always hear that isn't that it's a straw man thing. I, I, I would suggest that no one's saying that anymore. I, yeah. I just don't think it's sustainable to say that anymore because I can go online and I can show you within two seconds a ream of articles from left-wing publications that prove that it's not. That was that was the typical thing. It's just a denial that there was a problem. Uh, same thing with the cancel culture thing. You said the response from the left has been, there is no such thing as cancel culture. It's mm. a denial. It's the Trump tactic. So I don't think, um, yeah, I don't think you can possibly say that I'm strawmanning something that doesn't exist now that it is so culturally, obviously culturally prominent. Mm. And given that Titania is still taken seriously by a lot of people and and, given the fact that stuff that I say as her is, uh, is very, very close to what people are actually saying. I mean, I just did a thread about how medical science is racist and needs to be banned. And I used the exact same logic that is used by the people who, um, who write articles for disability studies and fat studies, which involves a complete denial of science. And, and the, the arguments are actually identical. I haven't really changed them. But you, I problematized the idea of being, um, of being well and ill and sort of said that if you're ill, you should celebrate that as your identity and hospitals should therefore be closed because that's a threat to their identity. So that sort of thing. But it's the exact same thing about, you know, like we're going back to what children know. Everyone knows that if you eat a lot, you get fat and and that you get ill. Everyone knows this. The, den- the denial of the science does not help people who struggle with their weight. And that's what the the body positivity movement. See, I, I, I think if you want to set up a movement that stops people from being bullied and stigmatized for their weight, I'm all behind that. I think that's a good thing. But if you're going to do that through postmodern or the perversion of postmodernism that we've discussed and through the denial of reality and science, then no, I'm not behind that. Because then what you're doing is endangering people's lives.
1: So I think it might have been a Titania tweet on that topic. Apologies if it's, a, if it's a different one. And I think we kind of touched on this a bit last year, but it'd be interesting to come back to it. When you do something like that as Titania and, and you're satirising and, and um, exaggerating a particular point of view, when somebody comes along in the comments who, if they only knew it, probably are, are broadly on a wavelength with Andrew Doyle, yeah. And think, and i was saying to Titania, "That's that's just wrong. That's stupid. How can you be such an idiot? How does that feel to then argue with them as Titania, and to see perfectly reasonable arguments that are not a million miles away from the arguments you might make as yourself? Yes, in your in your mentions, do you, like do you feel a bit bad for them?
2: Yeah, some yeah, sometimes <laughs> I feel bad. Um, it depends if they come in in a really nasty way. So they don't know who Titania is, and they're just and they're like, oh, you fucking ugly bitch?" and all this. I don't feel bad about showing them yeah. up because I think, mm, you've got a problem with women, so I'm just gonna, so, so I don't mind that. And I do argue with them in character and that can be quite fun. Sometimes <laughs> someone's just a bit stupid and yeah, then I yeah. do feel a bit bad about it, a, a little bit. But it, but it is quite funny. <laughs> you know, if, if they just take it completely seriously and, and I like seeing how long I can keep the arguments going and I, I say more increasingly ridiculous things to try, I want them to get it. I'm almost willing them to get it. <laughs> I mean, there was one argument I had, I had a big long argument and, and towards the end it was getting so stupid. I, I, I started saying, oh my God, you sound like one of these parody accounts. I bet I bet you're a parody. I bet, you're, I bet this is satire. I'm just desperately signaling to you, this isn't real, come on.
1: Presumably sometimes you can kind of tell that they're a good, a decent bloke and that yeah. they're There's... saying all the right
2: things. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I don't, and I don't, you know, I'm very wary about, I, I know, I think we talked about this quite a lot last time, but I'm very wary of punching down. I don't like the idea of being mean. It, 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 I, I just hate it. I hate I hate anything that has that kind of taint of viciousness about it. And I understand that Titania sort of treads that line a bit because she's 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 mocking human beings, ultimately. So you know, and this is particularly with the new book, because, um, you know, she's addressing real life people chapter by chapter. But then I rationalize it by saying, you know, these are powerful people. These are yeah, powerful okay. people with a big platform and a powerful voice. And I think in that sense, it's always going to be, it's always going to be punching up. And I'm not, I don't think I'm doing it in a mean way. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think I'm mocking people's appearance. I don't think I'm wishing them ill will or anything like that. I think I'm definitely exposing the absurdity of their viewpoints. And I think that's, I think that's fair game. I yeah, I would say
1: because in woke there was some there was and we talked about some of them. There were bits where you could, if you had to, say, ah, but that's not ridiculous. Somebody real has basically said that. So you think this is extreme and ludicrous, but actually it's based on something real. And so that was a kind of extra hidden layer to to go into if people wanted to, or if they could spot it, or yeah. that you could you could bring out those guns in a sense if you needed to yeah but in the little book it's directed like you're saying this is the stupid thing this person has done or these are this, this is the stupid level of admiration that this person attracts so did it feel like you kind of needed to to name names and talk about actual people
2: partly because it's it's the it's the the structure of the book is based on the good night story for rebel girls structure which is Uh, you know the the icons of history who Titania loved so I sort of had to address there's a bit of you know I mean I do for each one there's an illustration and a quotation and about 90% of the quotations are real and I quite like the idea that people have to work out which ones aren't real and which ones are Um, basically they're all real if they're from someone who's living because I couldn't get away with misquoting someone I'd get sued the one that although I've misquoted so the quote that I've attributed to Elizabeth Warren is just an ancient North American um, indigenous proverb but I think the joke's obvious what I'm doing there. So I don't think she can sue me yeah. for that. And the joke, the, the, the quotation from Nelson Mandela is actually a quotation from March of the Penguins because she thinks he narrated it because, because Titania is racist. Yeah. Right, so this is, what, this is one of the point, points I'm trying to sort of emphasize in this, like for all her. And that, that's what I imagine might get me into trouble is that she's just <laughs> so obviously racist. I think and that's what I'm mocking I'm mocking the the racism there but yeah when you're talking about specific people like I can imagine a firstly I don't think these celebrities are going to read it so I I sort of don't think it matters is it conceivable that like Sam Smith could read it and get upset by the chapter on him yeah but am I am I worried about what a billionaire thinks about I don't know my sympathy is a bit limited if yeah, he read it and was upset by it. He would just film himself crying, put it on YouTube, and it would be great yeah, for him. And it? get so some capital, exactly. So I don't, you know, I, I don't. I also don't think. I mean, I had this conversation with. I, I, um, I had a tweet from a the Telegraph. It was and and like as often I screenshot the the article, and post it and make a joke about it. But because it always has the name of the author of the article, apparently this author got a lot of trolling out as a result. And she emailed me saying that she was, she was upset about it and she'd had some nasty messages. And, you know, I replied saying exactly what I think about that, which is which I don't endorse any kind of unpleasant nasty messages on Twitter. And I, and I don't like the fact that that happened to her. But I also made the point that what can satirists do if, if, we, if articles from powerful news outlets are out of bounds mm. for satire? what what would have i got news for you do mm-hmm. what would what would what would the mash report do what would anything do what 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 are we left with I, I think in terms of punching up punching down i wasn't going to some someone's blog who's got like 10 followers and saying look at this twat you know i i i, I was talking about a really powerful paper an article in a really mainstream paper so and i'm sure she's right that some horrible people sent some horrible stuff but first firstly that's not me i didn't send those things but i don't i don't agree with the narrative that i i stirred no. that up or created that you know it's I, it's it's a tricky one
0: i suppose that's yeah. interesting i mean and that's a question that i think both of these books raise about who the the precision of the target because yeah. as we were saying earlier the target of these books or it, it might if it's my understanding is it's sort of it's not the individuals named it's the the way that they're interpreted it's it's sort of the or in my understanding it's kind of this level of people who are actually victims of woke culture themselves in that they've ended up wholeheartedly embracing this faith-based inconsistent ideology which benefits sometimes them but often capitalism or and and more often than not jeopardizes the cause they think they're championing that that seems to be the target and in the newspaper example i imagine the target isn't just the author of the article it's the telegraph it's the media system that's allowed that thing to
2: be made right exactly 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 so it's And that's sort of, I think that's fair game. So it is about weighing up what's fair game and what is not fair game. And, you know, for instance, the the chapter on Desmond is Amazing, who's the the 12 year old drag kid. I was very careful in the way that that's written. And actually, if you read it, it's not it's mostly not about him at all. It's more like an excuse to talk about the phenomenon of drag kids. So most of it actually isn't really about him. And really, the chapter is about the way in which he has been exploited. Uh, And that's what the target is. But you could read that and just, and just have a knee-jerk reaction that you're bullying a child. I've been very careful. I mean, I do think about everything I write. I do, I do weigh it up. And sometimes I'll probably get it wrong. But I think in this case, I was, I was pretty careful.
1: Did anyone say, don't, don't do this, or don't do this about that person? Was there any, yeah. any of the chapters that you had to kind of argue for?
2: Yes. Well, with the lawyers, especially. And I don't know what the, to the extent that I can talk about it. But it's, it, well, it's this thing of, you know, every book has to go through a legal read to make sure you're not libeling anyone. And the problem that you have is if your lawyer doesn't understand satire, then there's, there's going to be problems. You know, I mean, all sorts. Of, it, was, it was flagged up that I could get sued by all of these people, that Meghan Markle might sue me if, you know. Uh, but it only worked if you took her literally. But, that, but the, the context of the book means you're not supposed to take any of this any of them literally but to give an example though the uh the Covington boy you know the catholic boys that were wore the MAGA hats at the Washington Monument or the Lincoln Monument and um there was that incident where the 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 Native American man came up to them with the drum and he was accused of smirking at them in a violent way or whatever and it it went it went viral and, and basically this child 15 year old boy was bullied by the world's media and people were wishing him to be killed and all sorts of horrible things his family have now su- successfully sued all sorts of major media outlets like cnn uh so there was a sensitivity there because titania would obviously say he's a horrible racist fascist now if you take that literally then yes he him his family could sue me but of course actually the book was defending him the, the comments in the book were defending him really by by endorsing the views of the people that he, that he sued so i did end up having to modify things like that, and, um, and in a sense that's quite good because it, it, it sort of forced me to rethink how I can express these, these sort of things. And to give another example, oh well, okay, well here's an interesting one. So there's a chapter about Jussie Smollett uh, in the book who's the, now he's currently going through some sort of legal challenge because he claims he didn't concoct his own hate crime. And of course, most people think that he did, including the police. Now Titania initially was saying that, you know, even if he, uh, she basically was on his side that was the whole point. And I was told to modify that to make it clear that I'm not saying the hate crime was staged because otherwise I might get sued. But the effect of that satirically is now tiny says stuff like they, they, they claim that he staged the attack, which he definitely, definitely didn't do. And it sounds like I'm saying he definitely did because of the way that satire works. The chapter is now even more damning of Jussie Smollett because of the interventions the lawyer asked me to make. So I'm happy with that. It's actually improved it. But the idea of if I've hurt someone's feelings, they can't sue me for that until the exactly. SNP's new bill goes through in scotland and then then they can i can go to prison for it that's a different
1: surely well, they can't do that retrospectively or can they I? I don't know because the law is, you can't with other laws you can't go back can you you can't say
2: we don't have a statute of limitations do we on i don't know we don't better
1: find out <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, it'd be interesting, won't it?
0: Um, I was going to say, what do you think about that question that we raised a couple of episodes ago? One of our listeners wrote in to ask us if we thought kindness had killed
2: satire. What do you think? Well, satire is often unkind, isn't it? And and I think comedy can be unkind. It's, it's certainly critical. It certainly uh, has the potential to offend. But that does not mean that I don't think comedians have a responsibility to, to be human beings. Mm-hmm. And, and But I think we all do. We're like All comics think about the jokes they tell and they decide whether they are fair and whether they're justified and, or some don't, but most, the vast majority do. Mm-hmm. The problem you have is that people just interpret your intentions as being bad from the, from the outset. I'm a very non-confrontational person and I'm, I'm very aware that I don't want to hurt people's feelings, but I'm often perceived as doing so because I'm, because I'm criticizing these issues. And, and as we've already discussed, people will, and I think more and more I'm seeing now, people will willfully misrepresent you as being a bully. When actually, what you're doing is is standing up against bullies. but this is a tactic, isn't it?
1: I don't know if you're aware of Lee Stein or have come across her novel Self-care. We talked to her a couple of weeks ago, so this it's essentially a satire on on the wellness culture, on startup businesses that actually have deeply dodgy HR structures and no maternity leave, and so on. Yeah. And also as as Lee said, we'd suspected and Lee confirmed or that the third level of her satire, is about wokeness and okay. she said that she'd listened to our first titania interview she said that although she does write essays and articles that she when she was really kind of trying to critique something she preferred to do it by kind of parody and mimicry and mimicking the speech patterns of the kinds of people that are her targets and being mm. funny and irreverent in the novel that she was happier and more comfortable doing that sometimes than just writing an essay that's like this is this is what's wrong yeah. this is what's um, what what I'm angry about it sounds to me from what you've said that that isn't quite the case for Titania like or, or maybe it is but it seems like Titania is sometimes a kind of release of pressure or it's, it's a slightly more light-hearted way of dealing with the same issues
2: I mean it would have been the case when when no one knew it was me I think a little bit more because I could yeah. I could be more ambiguous and and experiment you know now now it is very much the case that I'm aware that when I'm talking as her that people know it's me and they know about my politics and all the rest of it. So, yeah, so it's, it, that's changed the the dynamic a little bit. And, and, you know, as I say, I think, I think we're just living in a world where, you know, you have to be clear about your position because people will misinterpret you or at least weaponize their deliberate misinterpretations of you. That's the, that's the point. So I think things have just, just changed now. So I love the idea of ambiguity in, in, in art and and creativity. I, 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 you know, when I write plays, I deliberately write morally ambiguous characters and the hope is you won't, you'll forget about me and you won't think about, you know. And I, I, I used to do that with stand-up all the time is that I would often say things I didn't believe uh, in a very emphatic way. And, and I'd want the audience to be thinking, well, does he really think that, does he not? That to me is, is really interesting, but I can't really do that anymore, particularly not with Titania, because there's too much baggage there now about that yeah. people know. I, I haven't, I mean, I did a t- stand-up tour last January And I wonder now what would happen. You know, that was before people knew I was Titania. I I wonder now what would happen if I were to do another stand-up tour, which I might be doing. It's going to change everything because people know too much. And certainly the people who are going to buy tickets to my show will know too much about what I already believe. I can't play with that ambiguity anymore uh, in the way that I once could. Or maybe I can. Maybe that's the challenge.
0: There was the resisting wokeness tour. I'm assuming that didn't happen because of coronavirus or that it didn't get very far.
2: Well, that's a different tour. That's the one with Douglas Murray. That's a political discussion. What I wanted, I mean, that was very specific. We both wanted to open up the discussion. We were very aware that we were both getting messages from people who want to talk about this stuff but can't. And we were very aware that there was a kind of general stifling of that discussion. And that's even more the case now. I think the tour would be much more relevant in today's climate than it was initially and then the other tour I was doing which got postponed was the tiny McGrath tour which was going to go on this march is now going to be next march so it was pushed back a whole year and I'll probably do this the opening warm up act for that as well so that's going to change if if we can i mean who knows but um again that's going to change so the two the two tours were completely different but the comedy thing and the the political discussion thing i do see as completely now feeding into each other mm. and because i've i've been so sort of i've done so much now of the commentary side of things and that's actually how I make a lot of my living. I I suppose that is now inevitable that I'm just gonna drift further into that thing. And also because I feel obliged to talk about it. You know, it's something I really care about and it's not something I ever planned. And I would love not to have to talk about it. I would love for us as a society to reinstate liberal values and free speech and all the things I really care about. And for this not to even be a discussion anymore, Let's, let's just move on. Mm. Uh, but that doesn't look like that's going to happen anytime soon. You'll notice the woke always turn on each other, and that, that always happens. And they problematize each other. There's that great clip that was from a, a Democrat national conference in America where someone had uh, made a, a point of personal privilege and said, "Can we please keep the noise down?" This person said, "Hey guys, can we keep the noise down?" I'm very anxious and sensitive to to sound, and it's and it's really bad for me. And then someone stood up and said, "Point of personal privilege. Don't call us hey guys." don't use gendered language because that upsets us and then someone else did another point of personal privilege and it, and, it, and it's it's a really lovely you should look it up it's a really funny speech um it's not it's, it was real you know but but they always turn on each other and you can never be intersectional enough and you'll always i love those arguments that you see between between them because they they've they've failed to be sufficiently inclusive in their language or and they always say, yes, I will do better. I will re-educate myself and all the rest of it. It's really funny. So I love the idea that Titania can constantly commit these problems and, and, these, and make these mistakes and undermine her own point. I mean, most of all, what I'm trying to do is show that she is actually a bigot and that her bigotry seeps through a lot of the time. Like the, when she, the, the chapter on Nelson Mandela, I think, is, shows her racism quite clearly. I think uh, her anti-Semitism comes through quite a lot. Uh, in what she says. I remember doing a thread on Twitter about The Simpsons and how The Simpsons was just full of disgusting stereotypes. And she said, you know, Apu is a disgusting stereotype of Asian people and uh, Homer Simpson stereotypes people of, of girth, you know, fat people. Uh, and then, and she said, and Mr. Burns, you know, they chose to represent Jewish people as avaricious and nasty business. And of course he's not Jewish, but her mind has immediately jumped to the fact that he must be Jewish. So it's her antisemitism that comes out through the error. So I like doing that kind of thing. But yeah, I think anything where she could have undermined her own point, where she could have said something that on another day would be the sort of thing that she herself would leap on and attack, because because it shows the inconsistencies in the whole ideology. It is full of inconsistencies. They're so blatant. But rather than reflecting on them and say, okay, so there's an inherent contradiction in our ideology here, maybe we should address that. They embrace them. And, 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 and they're not a problem at all for, for them. And that, that's, that's the case which goes right back actually to the, the postmodern origins. In fact, because embracing the contradictions might be part of the point. And I think there's a line in the new book where Titania talks about how if you can't, if you can't hold two contradictory ideas in your head at the same time, you can't be a social justice activist. Because the reality doesn't matter in her worldview. It does not matter. So, what you say to be true can be true at any time and it can change the next day. It's the same with the dead naming thing. You know, she'll talk about Veronica Ivey, who used to be uh, what, uh, Rachel McKinnon, yeah, who used to be Reese McKinnon. And she keeps saying this thing about, but she never was Rachel McKinnon yeah. uh, and never was Reese McKinnon, even when she was. And and, and and there's this torturous kind of logic going on there. And, and uh, you know, and, and yes, yeah, she also, and in fact, by doing that, she's dead named, by yeah, do, yeah. even by doing it. So, actually, She's already undermined her own point of view, and given that on Twitter, by the way, if you if you dead name or misgender someone, you can be booted off. Uh, I think that chapter could get me into trouble. But again, with the punching up, punching down thing, Veronica Ivory is not Ver- Veronica Ivory is not a particularly well known individual. Has said some vicious, bullying, vile things about people that I don't feel too bad about mocking her. No. To be honest, uh, I suppose that that yeah, one of the things that I
0: noticed, I noticed it in woke, I noticed it more in this in my little book is that. Titania seems really confused about feminism and her relationship to it. Like there's, there's one bit in this book where she talks, where she sort of boasts about how, because she's feminist, she's not shaved her legs. Yeah. But actually the kind of the sort of liberal feminism, the feminism, the mainstream social media feminism that we tend to see now, they would would probably argue shaving your legs is actually empowering because you're taking control of your image or whatever. Whereas it'd be, am I right about this Joe? Like it'd be a much earlier kind of feminism Mm -hmm. that would advocate, or that would
1: would, they would that would as a badge of honor? Yeah, I'd I'd say so. Yeah, Titania's brand of feminist is that kind, isn't it? It's like if you want to wear makeup, if 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 you like it, it's empowering. If it's empowering, it's but feminist.
2: Again, she's completely contradicting herself all the time because although she is of the school of feminism that thinks women are superior, she thinks women are superior, but also thinks that women should be able to have their free choice and do whatever they want. But she also now doesn't like saying the word woman, and she prefers womex instead, and and thinks that it should, you know she is at the She's at the crossroads between the, the, the trans ideology and the feminist ideology. And, yeah. and, and, and because the two cannot coexist and she's trying to make them coexist, hopefully the fact that she's trying to uh, adhere to both ideologies at once will expose the point that they can't coexist. They just can't. Neither can gay rights and trans rights. In a, well, actually, in an ideal world, they could. Because, you know, the liberal perspective is quite straightforward. is that everyone has the right to do whatever they want. Uh, as long as they're not causing harm to other people. And that's the the view that I would support, including calling yourself whatever you want. You can call yourself whatever you want, choose whatever pronouns, choose whatever name, but you cannot compel other people to use those terms. That's the liberal approach and that solves everything. And if someone doesn't want to use your pronouns, and you don't want you find that offensive and don't want to be their friend, then that's your choice as well. So it, it's a great system, right? This is the point. It's a brilliant system. And the system we're now moving into is the authoritarian system, which says no. The whole world's got to change around these people. And you we've got to regulate your speech so that this person isn't upset because words are violence, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's you know I do see it very much as the uh, the conflict between uh, liberalism and authoritarianism. That's what's going on. And that's what I'm trying to uh, address, mm. and certainly with uh, with trans issues and gay issues. I mean, now that Stonewall ha- is is pushing the idea that there's no such thing as same-sex attraction, and they're now calling it same gender uh, attraction, and now certain LGBT groups are talking about how genital preferences are transphobic. Um, well, you know, gay gay people have fought for decades for the right to sleep with people who are biologically their own sex, yeah. and if you're going to tell them that 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 it was for nothing, then they're not going to take that line down. That's not, it's not going to be it's not going to be pleasant. And, and it's also so palpably absurd, the idea that genital preferences are transphobic. It's just so obviously ridiculous. Self-evidently so. Which is why Titania says, you know, what, what is it she says? She says that if a straight man refuses to suck a female penis, that just proves he's gay. Something like that, right? So it's it's you know, we can go into this logic and and it's all about, it's all rooted in the denial of reality. And the denial of reality, as all well knew, is is a feature of authoritarian regimes. They will make you say things that are not true. That's why they want you to say two plus two equals five. They'll make you say it because it breaks apart your world. It breaks apart your imagination. It means you have no control over anything anymore. And you are therefore easier to manipulate and control by those in power. And that's what, that's what all of this stuff is about. And that's what that's what Titania represents.
1: Well, thank you thank you for joining us, Andrew. <laughs> we thank didn't... you
2: for having me. It's been nice to vent, get, get yeah. it all off my chest. You know?
1: <laughs> thank you.
0: Yeah. See you
2: soon. Bye, Andrew. Bye. Bye.
1: Well, that was really good.
0: That was really... I really enjoyed talking to Andrew about all of that. I mean, it was a fascinating, fascinating afternoon we spent talking to him, wasn't it? Um, and we covered so much ground. And, yeah, I mean, just left me with a lot to think about and i mean we've that's this the third time we've had an andrew on and our podcast uh, well the second time but the third episode that's been an interview with andrew doyle if you'd still like to hear more from andrew doyle you can because he has his own podcast as well doesn't he called culture wars culture wars yeah so if you'd like to hear more from andrew please do feel free to uh, give his podcast a listen i so
1: think you can find in um, similar places to where you can find ours can't you I, I listen on spotify but i think you can get it on um, all other major podcast platforms yeah and there are some really interesting episodes on there
0: absolutely now i think it's time to stop talking about the culture wars and i think we should do adam and joe's news of satire
1: all right let's do that news. News of satire. News, news, news.
0: joe satire New
1: what is the news of satire this january well at the end of
0: 2020 netflix released a big comedy special helmed by charlie brooker who you know we, we have talked about our affection for charlie brooker's work before in both his, all of his different variations of screen wipe. and we've talked a little bit we've sort of talked a little bit about black mirror here and there we never never talked about it extensively but we've touched on it and he released a new comedy special written with a group of writers, I think from England and America called Death to 2020. and that was one of the well that was one of the big releases on Netflix over Christmas, wasn't
1: it? Yes this is 2020.
0: I say it was a train wreck and a shit show, but that would be unfair to trains and shit.
1: I had been certainly looking forward to it. What did you think? Well, yeah, I, I
0: <laughs> had a mixed reaction to it, and I'm not the only one. So if people haven't seen this, it's about an hour and a half long, isn't it? And it's okay. a mockumentary in the style of, this is one of the things that, that, that makes me wonder why it was this way. So it's almost in the style of one of those lighthearted documentaries where it's like, we love the 1980s, isn't it? Or something like that, like great toys from childhood yeah. where you have like little bits of information interspersed with talking heads, usually like C or D grade celebrities that you forgot were alive. Come in and saying like, oh yes, everybody had, uh, in those days, everybody had... Uh, oh, you were uh, nobody
1: in 2001 if you didn't have a tiny wheel scooter.
0: That's it, yeah. Or, you know, I, I, oh yeah, everybody, they, they, they wibbled and they wobbled, but they didn't fall down. And Or oh, the robots in the MASH advert. And these are the sort of things they talk about. So it's in. that's the kind of format. Uh, I mean, I haven't seen many of those documentaries. I suppose there's been a, a recent spate of them on Netflix, haven't there? There's, there's one on Netflix about toys, I think. Um, but yeah, so it's kind of, that's the format, but everyone in it is a actor playing a character. So you've got a host of fictional characters reflecting on what 2020 was like. So that's the framing. And then it sort of goes through the big stories of 2020 with a satirical lens, I suppose. I wasn't sure about it. Like, um, And then I had a look at the reviews and, oh boy, they're polarised. So...
1: Are they polarised? I've only seen one saying it was shit.
0: So there's, there's a lot of very... Very negative ones. It's interesting, actually. Publications in the UK, like The Independent and The Guardian, seem underwhelmed by it, and they gave it low mm. reviews. The Independent gave it one out of five stars. The LA Times gave it a rave review, and they said this. The co- this COVID-era production from Black Mirror showrunners Charlie Brooker and Annabelle Jones is part clever parody, part reckless joyride. News clips from the last 12 months are interspersed with high-flying cultural satire, pointed political commentary, and wacky low-hanging fruit humour. Think of it as a corny year-end review crossed with Spinal Tap, dipped in Veep, and sprinkled with the absurd reality of our times.
1: Yeah, see, I think that's the problem, isn't it? Because I didn't want to think of it as a corny year-end review. I wanted it to be like Screen Wipe, and it so wasn't. And yeah, it was, like, at times you watch it and you're like, well, this, yeah, I know that happened. Like, I saw it. And And you just... Like footage of Boris Johnson saying, I shook hands with everyone. We've all seen that. I, I,
0: I, I, I'm shaking hands, I was, at a, I was at a hospital the other night where I think there were a few, there were actually a few coronavirus uh, patients and I shook hands with everybody. Uh, you'll be pleased
1: to know. And That's probably, there was a documentary the other night about the pandemic that swept the world, which I didn't want to watch because I already know. And, and I'm sure that that included that as well. I shook hands with everybody. But it's not, it, it was literally for big chunks. Of it, I was like, you're just saying what happened.
0: And I mean, it's pretty, it's tricky, or it's disappointing for British viewers because we already watched Charlie Brooker's, uh, what was it called, Antibacterial Wipe. We did the Ch- Boris Johnson Shaking Hands With People stuff, but much better. I shook hands with everybody. Um, I felt like it was doing too many different things. So there, there's sort of like very broad jokes about the Queen, isn't there? Like, very, like it's not even an impression of the Queen, it's just someone playing the Queen in a sort of very low, like a bad episode of Dead Ringers style. My name is Her Royal Highness Queen Elizabeth the First, Part Two. The purposes of this recording, you may address me as Your Majesty. Um, mm. There's there's a lot of broad humour. There's a lot of just saying what happened with little like juvenile jokes in it, and then there are these there are these one or two nuggets of like quite striking satire. I think. I mean, at the start, I felt a bit cheated because I thought we were in for like a Brass Eye-style takedown of the Netflix documentary, you know, when there's Samuel L. Jackson there saying, and they say to him, like, just looking for, he's he's like, I don't want you filming me when I'm not ready for some kind of informal clip at the start of the documentary. So I thought, oh, great, it's going to be a diagnostic parody, but then doesn't really do anything with that. There's one or two really great moments of commentary. So Samuel L. Jackson's character at one point talking about Black Lives Matter says... Corporations were going woke too, asking themselves how they could support black people without actually paying them, looking for costless ways of demonstrating their sensitivity by doing things like rebranding the cereal Ku Klux Crunchies as Rosa Parks Puffs, That's, that's astute, isn't it? I mean, that's quite, yeah. quite astute Juvenalian satire. So yeah, it felt extremely mixed. And I don't think there's any justification for it to be like over 90 minutes long.
1: Yeah, I think um, one of the reviews I saw in The Independent said like it, it doesn't know whether it's for a UK or US audience. And I think that's really tangible because there'd be big chunks where it's like, I mean, you know, there were big chunks of this year where the news was mainly focused on the US as well. And rightly so. But it would kind of shift between the two. And then you'd, then you'd almost forget the early parts of it had been about the, the UK experience. And then it'd come back to it and it'd just feel a little bit disjointed. And yeah, I, I like I say, it just didn't feel that different from, from an actual documentary. Lisa Kudrow's performance was was a standout part yeah. of it, wasn't it? I mean, she she was brilliant. But I, I think more as a result of her performance and kind of common timing and necessarily of the script.
0: Yeah. I mean there's a couple of characters that were interesting. So she was an interesting character because she was basically a Trump supporting politician, wasn't she? And until Trump lost and then she changes her mind and then pretends that she never supported Trump. And I mean that's quite interesting. There's the celebrity, isn't there? The kind of anti-vaxer celebrity Instagram influencer and the YouTube guy who does music for, for the, he's a really big really big YouTube success and he's deep he, like in his spare time DJs gender neutral music for gender coming out parties and there's, mm-hmm. the, there's a long clip of him driving around filming himself shouting through a megaphone at all white communities about how they need to support Black Lives Matter and there's sort of there's one or two bits that feel risky and interesting but
1: yeah I mean the, the anti-vax woman that sort of leaned heavily into the Karen meme didn't it and I think her name was Catherine in it but it was clear what they were doing there but then it I don't know it was she wasn't extreme or grotesque enough to be really funny so it just kind of felt like you you've you've made this kind of chimera of annoying people and then like you know she's she's an anti-vaxxer so obviously she's this obviously she's that or the other way around and it just kind of felt weak yeah
0: I mean, the independent review actually ends with a good observation, which is that, you know, Charlie Brooker, in addition to being a very dependable television maker and writer, built his career on blistering critiques of lazy television. He must be aware that this is substandard. He must know it. So the, the review ends with a series of questions. Is this a kind of television cash in hand plastering job for their bosses at Netflix who wanted a piece of the screen wipe action? Or was there meddling from above about his tone and direction? Or was there not enough time to apply the usual quality control whatever the answer death to 2020 is a mess and you'll be glad when it's over in that sense at least it's appropriate to its subject
1: yeah yeah i mean it, it did it did feel like a bit phoned in really didn't it yeah yeah why have diane morgan as somebody who's almost philomena kunk but isn't is is there some problem with philomena kunk now yeah like She's copyrighted elsewhere or something. She has
0: a she has a line, doesn't she? When she's talking about the first lockdown, and she says the streets were so empty, there was no one anywhere. It was so quiet you could literally hear yourself think. I imagine, suggesting that she doesn't <laughs> think, which is such a Philomena Kunk line, isn't it? So um yeah, why invent another character? But Philomena Kunk can exist outside of screenwork because she has her own documentary series. She
1: does, yeah. Well, maybe that's why.
0: Yeah. Maybe.
1: It doesn't work to have her as a talking head, every woman figure, if we also believe in that the reality, if that reality is canon, that she presents the the show about the history of Britain. Yeah, canon. that
0: was fun. That was so good. We should talk about that one. That was, that was, that was extremely good.
1: It just, I I think, I don't know, if, if there was ever a year when you needed some really good Charlie Brooker wiping, It was 2020, and that just felt like, just really basic, didn't it?
0: Yeah. I mean, I wonder if he wasn't very involved in it, and it's just kind of a little cottage industry now that he oversees, and Netflix were just looking for some easygoing comedy to fill the gap between Christmas and New Year.
1: Well... I mean, all of this that we've been saying, we've been like saying we didn't enjoy it very much and here are the problems with it. And, it, you know, the, the differences between wipe and all that. But to go back to like what the original premise of this podcast is and the kinds of things we've been talking about all along, does this tell us something about the state of satire? I mean, we first started out with the whole repeated thing about like, what of satire in an age of Trump and Brexit? And now we're in an age of Covid and Brexit and, and Biden. Things have changed a lot. So as much as we thought about whether Donald Trump as president or the reality of kind of festival of Brexit, as people were talking about way back when we started, does COVID kill satire? And I know we talked a bit about this in the summer, but do you think it wasn't very good because of the times?
0: Yeah, maybe. I think that's possibly as a factor. So, so they held back because nobody wants to be depressed at Christmas in a pandemic. Mm. I think that's a generous... read I think that's a tr- possibly true and generous reading because another one might be... No, you know, because it's produced by Netflix and it's got a global audience. Oh, well, that actually, that doesn't work. I was going to say, you've got to be... Ki- like, you've got you can't take as many risks because you don't want to alienate huge swathes of the audience because you've got a global audience of all different creations. Even
1: Charlie Brooker at his very wipiest wouldn't have been as risky as, say, Cuties.
0: No, I was just going to say that. And, and also, yeah, I mean, the Ricky Gervais stand-up we were talking about in the last episode was on Netflix, wasn't it? So that's not a factor. Yeah, no, I wonder if they just held back because it didn't feel appropriate at the time. So COVID may have muted mainstream satire, certainly.
1: Or is it just that it's... Hard to, uh, yeah, it's just hard to, hard to be funny about because every time you joke about, oh, I had to go to Castle Bernard for an eye test, it's like, yeah, and the punchline is, loads more people died as a result.
0: Yeah, that's not good, is it? I suspect, just to end on a more optimistic note, and of course, we'd love to have Charlie Booker on the podcast.
1: I, yeah, that'll happen. I
0: am... Um... I suspect that, that that is going to get better with time, I think. I, I suspect if, we, if if Death in 2020, if we watch it again in 2030, we'll be like, oh, God, there's loads of great lines in here that we missed or didn't appreciate. Mm. I've only watched it once, yeah, for a life. I've only watched it once, and I think it's maybe denser than it appears on a first watch. Like, I think there's throwaway lines that you're not really listening because you're waiting for it to kick off, and it never really does. I wonder if it'll just be a slow burn Because, like, I know it's not Charlie Brooker, but the first time I watched Four Lions, I remember thinking... Well, that's not right. That wasn't very funny. And then I watched it again to teach it a few years later and I was like, this is ingenious. This is incredible. So I know yeah. well enough not to say that there won't ever be a time where I appreciate debt of 2020, but it's not right now.
1: I mean, maybe everybody just had so much more than usual invested in Christmas telly this year, you know, because like normally there's there's something about that gap between Christmas and New Year where you're mostly based at home and it's all sort of cosy and that's a bit different when you don't know if you're ever going to be allowed outside again, isn't it? And when things are, are looking really bad and there's all sorts of like complications about who you can see and who you can't see. And that that sort of like sitting around in the afternoon and watching telly doesn't feel like a Christmas treat. It feels like something you probably better get used to. I th- perhaps we all just really needed it, everything to be excellent and were harsher on it if it wasn't. I mean, yeah, that was, that's something that we perhaps won't
0: remember in the future about this Christmas is that there was nothing new really on the telly, was there? And mm-hmm. what, what the, on the main channels, BBC and ITV, they just filled it with game shows because you can, fil- you can film those in a socially distant way. But then I wondered if they had a rule about only being able to use certain presenters, like you can only have so many people in the BBC at, at one time because the guy out of, uh, what's the fella called from The Chase? Bradley Walsh. Oh yeah. Bradley Walsh seems to present every single thing. I, I reckon he presented about 20 different things during this Christmas week. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it's just like, he's in the building so we can use it. I don't know.
1: <laughs> Bradley like, Walsh is just always lurking around the place. And like...
0: Yeah. And like, it didn't matter what panel show you're watching, Andy Carr is on it. Like, Alan, mm-hmm. Carr, Alan Carr is on it. So I just thought, is, is there some kind of rule? There's 10 talents, 10 comedians <laughs> and presenters, and they've got to use them for absolutely everything because, they're the only ones that are getting tested or something i don't know but yeah, yeah. No, that's, a, that's a good point we had a lot of, a lot of riding on it didn't we
1: yeah i tell you i tell you what they have managed to make all of the junior bake-off and stuff like that yeah yeah i, I maybe like everybody really loves the pottery throw down and the bake-off at the moment don't they? i wonder if everybody's like that's all we can cope with
0: <laughs> maybe maybe it is yeah Yeah, I hope they figure out a way to do who DARE's WINS. uh, That
1: reminds me, I have have a really good idea. um, You know Gavin Williams, Williams and Williams, uh, he he wants to do like alternative things for like school leavers that aren't going to university and be, you know, that'll be good for them and so on. So I had this really good idea that instead of, you know, people often talk about bringing back national service, don't they? And I think instead of bringing back national service, everyone at maybe maybe at the age of 18 can pick from things like the pottery throwdown bake-off sewing bee we probably add some others in there as well like it could be the great british house design or the great british gardening or whatever and you have to do one of them and you have to do it for like 12 weeks or whatever and then you can get crack on with your life but it seems like literally everyone is made a better person by doing those things it fosters the exact right net level of competition perfectionism and a desire to do well but also rewards collegiality friendliness not resilience not getting in a strop and throwing your thing in a bin when it doesn't work so everyone should have to do that and then they can do an English lit degree and and nothing else
0: I'm up for that so if that policy was instilled and everyone had to do like it was compulsory everyone has to do the Great British Sewing Bee or the Great British Bake Off and then an English Literature Degree, that would be... No, I'd let
1: them do whatever. They don't have to do an English Lit Degree afterwards.
0: But they have to do the Great British Sewing Bee or one of those type shows.
1: They have to do uh, something like that, yeah.
0: If everyone had to do that, that would be an authoritarian policy. Because they could choose, could choose which
1: one to do, can't they? Yeah, that's true.
0: So, so yeah, so, so they can choose between three options that stops it from being authoritarianism. Makes
1: no more, more than three, lots and lots of as many options as there are. For example, degree courses.
0: Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, brilliant.
1: It's so, your foundation yeah? Yeah. So that that brings it full
0: circle. So thanks everyone for listening to this to this podcast
1: oh that's the end
0: it? is it well, did, did, well i don't know what else to talk about yeah i know that that is the end they probably it probably ended a long time before that to be fair no i think i think there's a lot of good stuff in there but yeah thank, thanks everyone for listening and just to reiterate what we said in the last episode if you have any thoughts comments responses to our interview with andrew or anything we've discussed on the podcast either in this episode last episode or any episode we'd love to hear your thoughts about it you can contact us where can they contact us joe twitter Yep.
1: our socials generally um Twitter at satire no more instagram at talk about satire yep email satire no more at gmail.com
0: that's all of them yeah so uh, any one of those and uh, yeah feel free to drop a couple of pennies in our merch store <laughs> whilst you're there we should have a merch store shouldn't we we should have a merch store we've got we've got some we've got some price types of merchandise haven't we so
1: maybe that would be a good one the, the great British making merch for them to talk about satire
0: yeah if anyone wants to make us merchandise for free please do Mm. please do give us a yell um but that's the end for this episode so uh what are we doing next time Joe? we'll
1: talk to ollie grant about his satirical book which we also mentioned in the christmas special which is called how to live well the north korean way
0: yeah how to live well the north korean way it's gonna be good Looking forward to sharing that interview. That's another one that we recorded a a little while ago now, isn't it? So we can't wait to share that with the world. So we'll see you in February, everybody. Or you'll hear us in February, everybody. Sit up.
1: Shut up.
0: Stay safe.
1: And stay alert. And eat. Our
0: satire.
1: Bye. Bye.